Thanks, as always, for checking out the podcast. Good bit of baseball in it this week. Robert Flores of MLB Network, Grant Paulson of MLB Network Radio, and, of course, our own at 106.7 Fan, Adnan Verk of ESPN, all talking Washington Nationals and more. Chase Hughes talking Wizards, Chase of CSN Mid-Atlantic. Uh, also have a little bit of nonsense. Yeah, it was a lot of nonsense. Pete Medhurst, the umpire, PJ Elliott, my producer on Sundays, the coach, and me all discussing technical fouls. Well, Pete wasn't really a part of the discussion, except for he kind of was. It was a crazy segment. It's in the podcast, as is some a segment with some calls on Kirk Cousins. We start, though, with one of my favorite guests to have on. Um, I really just try to find excuses to have him. Brian Curtis of The Ringer, talking media in all kinds of different ways. It's all on the podcast, and it's starts Craig Hoffman in the chair for overtime tonight. We're about an hour away from first pitch of the home run derby, or first swing, I guess as they call it. And uh, BP going on right now, and apparently Aaron Judge just hit the rafters at Marlins Park, which is something that's never been done before. So this could be fun. Also always fun, talking to Brian Curtis of The Ringer. He's an editor-at-large for The Ringer. Uh, He writes about media and specifically sports media. Always enjoy our conversations. Brian, how are you, sir? Great, Craig. Let's hit the rafters with this segment. You ready? Let's do it. Let's knock it proverbially out of the park. Uh, Boom. I want to start with not horrible sports cliches, uh, but in my (laughs) opinion, horrible sports programming, and I'm curious what you think of it. Um, You wrote recently uh, a number of articles that we're going to touch on, but um, Jamie Horowitz is out at Fox, and his way of programming debate shows and and obviously first take being the most famous of them and now what he's done with the lineup over at fox is one that within sports media circles uh is not very well received but is obviously well received enough by the viewing audience that it it continually uh program because i guess it makes money do you think that this form of programming has some kind of long staying power or is this you know obviously the way he's leaving fox is uh amid a sexual uh, harassment suit potentially is is not the way anybody would have thought uh, necessarily that this ends. But with him now out of the picture, ignoring the why, do you think this is the first step towards the end of this the embrace debate culture? You know, I don't. And I'll tell you two reasons why. One is that what Horowitz was trying to do at Fox was essentially solve a problem, right? He was trying to compete with ESPN on the one hand, but he was also trying to solve a problem that was going on when he was a bag of producer at ESPN, which is that highlights can no longer carry a sports television show by themselves. That's why we see stuff like The Six, right, with Michael and Jamel, which is more about conversation than showing highlights. You don't see many highlights on that show at all. So his answer to that question was, okay, highlights don't work by themselves anymore. Let's have two people debating, right? Let's have Skip and Shannon, Skip and Stephen A before that. Let's let's figure out all these different combinations. So that's one thing. Will that last? I think I think it will for two reasons. One, because I'm not sure what else these sports networks are going to do in this time of, you know, when we get all our highlights instantly on Twitter. And two, I think it will last, but in different form on ESPN, right? We see a new, there's a new ESPN show coming up with Pablo Torre and Bamani Jones. Well, that's not exactly a Jamie Hurwitz two people arguing show, but it is a show about the personalities of the hosts and their relationship. So I think it's very much in the school of Horowitz, if that, if I can coin the term here. Yeah, no, and that's kind of where I wanted to to ask a follow up is if if 
is there a place for smarter versions of these shows would be kind of one way to ask that question. Where do you think that that people like Pablo and Bomani and look, Bomani in this town is not the most beloved uh, sports personality because he's been rather harsh on Kirk Cousins. Um, but he's a really smart dude. Uh, and Pablo Torre is brilliant. And obviously uh, filmed right down the road uh, from, from where I'm sitting is PTI, who is two, Michael and Tony are two smart guys. And that show's been on for a long time. And it's it's different than the hot takery of a first taker and undisputed. But do you think that there is a place for that kind of show, a debate show that is not about hot takes? Is that maybe where it goes? Yeah, I think so. And I think we're already seeing more of that on ESPN. I, I never thought ESPN was entirely comfortable with the kind of first take culture that Horowitz unleashed over there. And you saw them at times recoil from it. And, and then, of course, try to make themselves something different. So I think what you'll see is what you said. It's sort of shades uh, of opinionating, which don't necessarily involve two people completely going nose to nose. You have PTI, the grandfather of this stuff. You're going to have Pablo. I think, you know, Michael and Jamel is an example, right? The mm-hmm. show that really exists on the, on the interplay between two people. So, yeah, I think you'll see different shades of this. I think you probably already are. Brian Curtis of The Ringer with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. I guess the other thing that has seemed to have been able to last as the highlight has died is the studio show. It's just not highlight-based anymore. Um, What is it about studio shows, and what are kind of the next iterations of them that have been so successful going all the way back to the 1980s and NFL Today and and the Brent Musburger-led version of that? Yeah, it's amazing because I work on the Internet, and whenever I see something called web video, it seems like more often than not it's an old-fashioned studio show. It's totally produced for the Internet, but it has that host sitting over there on the left right, and a couple of analysts sitting to the host's right and them kind of talking about the news of the day. And I'm like, wait a second, I've been watching this format of television since I was a kid. You know, I think on the one hand, it's probably just like kind of an easy way to organize people. That's why there's so many amount in the world. But the, to your question, I think we really love watching people on television or on the web try to process breaking news live. Like we love to watch them. You know, even if what they say isn't like the brightest or most brilliant thing in the world, we love watching them because that's sort of compelling in a way. You saw a lot of that on election night, right? We had a shocking result. You see that when there's a big trade in the NBA or, on, or during a draft, right? You know, in the old days when Mel Kiper used to go off on ESPN. And to me, that's the big power of the studio show, this ability to see people trying to process information on the fly. Do you think that that is another way in which networks try to fill time and maybe now Sands Horowitz, Fox goes in that direction too? You see a show like NFL Live that especially during the season gets a ton of airtime. I mean, I feel like that show's three hours long now. The jump on ESPN. Uh, is is there more room for more of that kind of programming that maybe does dive into a little bit of the, the debate at, say, a place like Fox? Yeah. I mean, if it has NFL in the title, it's already got a leg up, right? <laughs> we yeah, know that the whole true. world is professional. I think we just had like the only all NBA week we have all year and the rest of in the rest of the uh, year is all professional football in some form or another. Sure. I can see that happening. They're also going to have they going to have Big Ten sports this fall, which is a big thing for them. They're finally going to have those Michigan games that are somehow on ESPN every Saturday at noon. You know, anytime you can't get rid of Michigan, why is Michigan always on my TV? Right. So I think there's there's also room to sort of play around with that, you know, coming into college sports, talking about the week in college sports, that sort of thing. Generally speaking, how much does the game 
uh, arsenal of a network influence their programming? Like, should should FS1 doesn't have NFL games? Obviously, Fox itself has the rights to them. Like, do you think they're making a mistake by not doing more NFL programming? And then maybe even to take it a step further, more NBA programming, something that drives a ton of traffic on ESPN. Um, but they obviously have the league, and it would make sense that that they are trying to promote their own product. Right, it's tricky, isn't it? Because uh, I think the first thing the network thinks is we're going to let these two things cross-pollinate, right? So we're going to show an NBA game, we're going to show you promos for the jump, so then you watch the jump, and on the jump we're going to talk about the NBA game that's happening the next night, so then you'll keep kind of coming back and forth. It gets tricky when you say, well, FS1, is, are they going to spend a lot of time advertising the NBA that's going to send you looking for Turner or looking for ESPN? But no, I, I, I think you know there are ways to do it in a clever way. I still think those shows... As good as some of them are, I still don't feel there's one that really, really speaks to the world we live in, the kind of fantasy-driven world we live in, the kind of Twitter-driven world we live in, especially the NBA and Twitter personalities, that sort of thing. Those elements are in sports television. I'm not sure they're all in one roof. And I think if you could kind of come up with something like that, I think it could be a success. Yeah, I, I think one of the ones that does it the best is the starters on NBA TV. It's just they don't have any major personality to drive it. Like, if you know those guys because you're a fan of the show, they're great. But the average person walking down the street doesn't know who Skeets is. <laughs> right. right, exactly. And, but you know what? Maybe that's, you know, we're, we're now, again, part of, I think, the Horowitz legacy is these kind of overwhelming, big-time, capital letters personalities. And I think there are... There is room in sports television for something a little bit lower key. Um, Katie Nolan's future at Fox is is up in the air right now. As I'm joined by Brian Curtis of The Ringer um, here on The Fan. Uh, she was able to, despite the fact that her show was on late at night, the, the ratings themselves weren't great, but she had a lot of stuff go viral. She played the web, and she was of the web. She got her start on the web before going to television. Um, and her personality, her star is significant. What does Fox do with her until the end of her contract? And then is it is it as much of a foregone conclusion that she is going to ESPN uh, as everywhere I'm reading says seems to think it is? Yeah. And then what does ESPN do with her, by the way? All I've heard is that she's going to ESPN, as as has been reported, that it would be in some also as has been reported in some kind of floating capacity where she's kind of a full time guest provocateur you know, person that you kind of throw out there to, to enliven, then it kind of enliven the whole network up and down the schedule. I mean, they've got lots of shows she can appear on because you can literally appear on any show. Mm-hmm. I think one of the great kind of unrealized experiments of this, of this little patch of history with sports TV is if she had moved from New York to LA and done a daily show for Horowitz, because I think she was always doing that really remotely on the other side of, of the country. Mm. And if she had worked for him every day and kind of let him shadow produce the show, let him sort of talk her through dealing with the daily television show, I think that would have been fascinating. It would have been totally different than everything else on FS1. Uh, Horowitz is and was a, a very talented uh, TV producer. And I've just been really interested to see what they came up with. It doesn't sound like that's going to happen. I, I Boy, it doesn't, sure doesn't seem like she's going to appear on Fox again, but but who knows contractually whether she's going to be able to get out of there or not. You sure you're not just sandbagging it with with your boss? Because I know how fond Simmons is of Katie. No. You're not just you're not just you're not just playing coy here. 
No, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't have any news. To <laughs> <laughs> Brian Curtis of I'd The Ringer it, with I'd me. I'd break it right here if I had it. Yeah, let me tell you. I, and I would take that. I would take that. Um, <laughs> last thing for you, um, the pivot to video. You wrote about this uh, about a week ago. And this idea, and this actually happened right before Horowitz left Fox. Fox basically fired all their writers and said, we're just going to put video on our website. And I know as a consumer that when I click on something that is a good headline expecting an article and see video, that I am, do not possess the skills to close the window fast enough. If, I, if I'm, <laughs> I'm someone who would like to read and consume that way, I know you are an, a, a self-described sports writer, um, with the keyword there being writer. So what do you make kind of of this, this pivot to video and, it, and its ability to be successful? And is it something that that you think happens more often is sports, right? I mean, everyone wants to say sports writing's dying because newspapers have gone away in, in many ways, but writing is still thriving on the internet. There are still so many good written pieces on the internet. Are we really going to lose those two? Gosh, I sure hope not. And I, and I agree with you. Writing is not dying. It's not dying at all, but the ability to monetize it and to make money from it is in danger. You know, this whole quote unquote pivot to video is based on this idea that publishers think and advertisers think if you put an ad at the beginning of a video, people are less likely to ignore it than if you put the ad next to the article you're reading. And I'm with you. I click on something. I think it's an article. And then there's just this video sitting on the page. I scroll down and go, oh, no. Oh, no. There's nothing written here. Oh, no. Well, now what am I going to have to watch some stupid video? I really hate it. And, it, and it's really kind of soul-sucking. It's really depressing. And, yeah, for me, as a self-described sports writer, as you say, only on a good day do I manage to make the words <laughs> make any sense. I just, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's scary to us because it just feels like you're being replaced, not, not by a, a superior writer, which I could always deal with, but by just some other technology. I mean, it just feels almost futuristic. Like, oh, so sorry, Mr. Curtis, we're just going to be making videos now and no need for your services anymore. You know, and I think the other thing is, I just don't know what's, a, you know, I think if 10 years ago I wrote this uh, on The Ringer, if we had said we're all going to pivot to podcasting, I think a lot of writers would have gone, oh, no, podcasting, that's terrible. Well, now you think of podcasting, you think of Simmons, you think of Mark Maron, there's all these serial, right? There's all these great examples out there. I just, part of the problem is, what's a great video job right now? What is, what is somebody who's doing great video on the web in a kind of smart, writerly, interesting, investigative way? I don't think we have a great example, and I think that's part of the problem uh, and part of where all this fear is coming from. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I know when Bomani was with SB Nation, that he was doing some interesting video commentary that was very well produced. And that, I thought, had potential. It's just, it was SB Nation, so I don't think as many people were aware of it. Um, but the idea that I can get a, the kind of insight I would get in a column in a video form is just, that doesn't add up to me. Yeah, it's sort of like, what I see it now, it's an adornment to what the person already does, right? It's right. Clay Travis, you know, sitting there filming himself, giving the news of the day. It's Skip Bayless does those on Facebook, I see from time to time, you know? And I'm like, but you guys already have shows. <laughs> you have this, this platform to say whatever you want. What is the person who, this is their platform, and they're really doing something interesting and smart and different with this medium? Right. And, and it's the ability to go deeper in a column that you don't necessarily like it would be a ridiculously stupid long video that nobody would ever consume um, as opposed to being able to read it in a column. The depth, I think, yeah. is, it's like it's a different medium for a reason. 
can. There's still there's right, and there's still power to to video and to television, right? You think of Van Jones sitting there, you know, on CNN on the on the night of the election, or, or you know, so there's obviously sports examples of that too. Katie Nolan's hit a few of them, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's what I want to do: harness that power. We're looking at the person, we're connecting with them. It's emotional. It's interesting. How do we figure out how to do that on the web on a regular basis? Uh, last question for you, and I'm glad you brought up Clay Travis's name because it, it jogged this in the memory. And I don't agree with Clay oh, on boy. basically anything, and I typically don't even bother reading most of his stuff. But I did read his his idea of how kind of he's run his site and monetized it, and the idea that every basically every sports writer should treat their column like a radio show, where all of our hosts who do this during the daytime full time have car endorsements and this endorsement, and there's no reason that that sports writers couldn't have some kind of you know peer endorsement for the beer they drink while they write their column. What do you make of that idea of monetizing the writer um, as as a way to kind of shake up the system and and try to, I don't want to say save sports writing because that's not what I mean, but you you understand kind of the the path I'm going down there. Yeah, you know, strike me down where I stand, heaven help me, but I thought that was a pretty good article. Right. (laughs) What you said, what you said. I have my differences, shall we say, with Clay Travis. You know, I did think that was interesting. I did think it was even a little bit inspiring and good. You know, he's, of course, talking up what he did uh, at Outkick the Covered and stuff. Here is what the one big but of that, right? Okay. Let's say you're out on your own. Let's say you're trying to attract the audience without the help of a, you know, historical kind of, you know, normal sort of like publication, like the one I write for at The Ringer, right? How are you going to continue to get more and more readers? I would submit that at some point you are going to be tempted to say more and more crazier and outrageous things to get more readers, right? Something like Travis would never do, of course. No, no. Never, never do anything like that. See, when I write an article, one of the neat things about The Ringer is they're going to help me distribute it, right? Their website, my other friends, uh, my other writers at the website, Bill Simmons, perhaps, if he tweets something like that, so I can go in knowing... I'm going to write exactly what I want to say, and there's going to be this apparatus that's going to help me get that that story out to the world. When you're on your own, you don't have that apparatus. And I think there's there's a temptation and, and a kind of an economic thing, the same kind of economic incentives that Clay's talking about in that article, to say something really crazy or nutty or hot takey in order to get more attention, more clicks and stuff like that. Does that make sense? I mean, I just No, think it makes sense because way- I, I have often – questioned in this job as someone who like I went to journalism school I try to actually be intellectually honest with the audience and there are times I think that I'm doing it wrong because if I would just say the crazy thing then I would maybe have a full-time job doing this and would have gotten one long time ago (laughs) and would be making way more money I 100% get it there's incentives to be crazy and hot takey in all of journalism I'm not just saying this but I'm saying when it's like oh boy my paycheck is going to be either X or Y next month because I'm working for myself and this is all I have between mm-hmm. me and oblivion. I think the incentives get a little bit stronger. And I think if we were all working for ourselves and all quote unquote monetizing our content, I think that there's something to be said about working with a publication that sort of shelters you from that, that protects you and that helps you say exactly what you want to say within their, you know, loving arms as it were. Yes. No, I agree. Brian, always appreciate it. Always interesting and thought provoking. Uh, the articles are great as well. You can read them on the ringer. Uh, I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you for your time as always. Great to talk to you always, Craig. Thanks again. I'm going to ask you a very open-ended question to start because I don't want to qualify in any way and shade your answer. What do you make of the national season at the all-star break? 
I think they've had a really productive season. Their lineup is way better than I thought it was going to be. And they've dealt with plenty of injuries. I mean, you would have told me before the season started that Adam Eaton, who they traded arguably three of their best pitching prospects before the start of the season to acquire, wasn't going to be around. I'd say they have a huge leadoff problem. Uh, but the top of their order has been prolific. Trey Turner, who has regressed some this season, still leading Major League Baseball in stolen bases, despite the fact that he, too, has been on the DL. Uh, they plugged in Brian Goodwin, a former Arizona Fall League game MVP, who, if you look at you know, Goodwin, is probably not an elite prospect or even an everyday major leaguer at the beginning of the season in the eyes of the organization on a first division team. He's performed admirably. Uh, Ryan Rayburn off the bench, who they called him from the minor leagues, has given them some depth. And they've got five all-stars. Their lineup's led by Ryan Zimmerman, who's having the best first half he's ever had in one of the best seasons of his career. Bryce Harper's got a chance to win his second MVP award in three years. Daniel Murphy at 340 and was a runner-up in the MVP vote last year, and everyone thought he'd crash back down to earth. And all he's done this year is hit 340, and he's on pace for more homers than last season. He's kind of duplicating what he did. They lost Wilson Ramos. Matt Wieters has hit well with runners in scoring position and has done a much better job framing pitches and calling games than he was supposed to, according to the national media, when they signed him. Uh, their starting rotation, led by Scherzer and Strasburg, is strong up front, but not as good in the back. But the story of that rotation is that Gio Gonzalez has pitched like a bona fide front liner. He should probably be at the all-star game third in the national league and ERA right now. Uh, their bullpen is obviously the one debacle in terms of personnel that they can't sort out and can't figure out. And it's the one thing Mike Rizzo is going to have to fix because they'll get healthy. Trey Turner will come back and they're going to get help when Michael Taylor's off the disabled list has been good in the outfield, but the bullpen is what they've got to cure and, and they're going to have to give up some prospects to do it. Yeah, definitely. Grant Paulson, host of, obviously, Grant and Danny here on The Fan, also Minors and Majors on MLB Network Radio, uh, which is why he's down in Miami. He'll have the Futures game later today. Um, the You've talked on your show and reported that there have been some deals out there to be made, and there may have been some ownership pushback. What are What is Mike Rizzo going to be allowed to do to fix this bullpen? Like, if you were to predict the deal that happens what is it and, and versus what it could be yeah so i think ultimately they will get a deal done where they acquire a quality closer but i think the meeting in the middle that's going to have to happen with the learners for mike rizzo is he's going to have to get someone with controllability i don't think they're going to allow him to flip one of their top prospects or bring on a guy who's a free agent again i think the learners are probably at this point over the renting of relievers for half seasons at a time see Mark Melanson last year, which gets you right back to square one, where now you're looking for relief pitching again after you gave up a guy like Felipe Rivera, who got off to a marvelous start in Pittsburgh this season. So a name I would throw at you is Rysel Iglesias of the Cincinnati Reds, a guy who is not only quality already in the back end and could close for you down the stretch and help you this year, but you'd control him for multiple seasons thereafter. And if you're going to give up a blue chip prospect, someone in the top of their system, say a Victor Robles, who Mike Rizzo doesn't want to part with and is viewed right now as an untouchable. I think to bring a reliever in for a player like that, it's got to be someone who can cure your closing situation throughout this window of an opportunity to win a World Series with Bryce Harper, which is at least the next two seasons. So I think that would be the key. But to your point, I did report this. and I had heard from people in the organization that they called the Rays about Colome. They wanted Robles. They told him no. I'd heard they called Oakland. They wanted to talk about relief pitching. One of the guys they talked to them about was Ryan Madsen, a non-closing reliever, kind of on the cheap. And I'd thrown out a deal on my Twitter account that they should have offered you know, one of their mid-level catching prospects in the middle of the system like Jackson Reach or something like that. And I was told, hey, that's actually kind of similar to something I heard that they did. 
Well, it didn't happen because they didn't want to take on the Madsen money after this year, which to me is silly. You know, we're talking about less than $10 million for a guy who might be able to pitch in the seventh or the eighth inning. So they're working on it. They're trying to get a deal done. The problem is I think Mike Rizzo has a lot of hoops to jump through anytime he wants to make a trade like this and, and add payroll. And you can't say that the learners have been cheap. I mean, they had, I think they had the highest payroll in terms of the position players fielded at the start of this season. Uh, with their opening day starter, Max Scherzer being a $200 million man, their number two starter, Strasburg's on $175 million contract. They've just divvied up their money in a way where very rarely do they spend on relief pitching. They tried to get Jansen. They tried to get Melanson. They were priced out on those guys. But the, the act, I think, for Nats fans is getting old where every single year they've got one hole in their game. It's the bullpen, and it's a big reason why they haven't gotten to a league championship series yet. Grant Paulson with me, Craig Hoffman here on the fan. All right, you got the Futures game later today. You host a show that talks about prospects uh, on the weekend on Sirius XM's uh, MLB channel. Who should we be watching for today? Obviously, Robles um, from the Nationals fan perspective. Like, who is the guy that you're most excited to see in person today uh, in that Futures game? Yeah, hit on Robles first just because Nats fans watching the game will get their first look at him on television. He's a 20-year-old who has all five tools, you know, which is an overstated thing, but he really can do everything on the baseball field. They signed him in 2013 at the Dominican Republic for 225 grand. And it looks like one of the all time signs internationally for the nationals at this point, he's six foot, he's a little bit under 190 pounds. He plays at a plus ball in Potomac. So in the area where people are listening right now, uh, this is going to change perhaps soon after the futures game, but you can go watch him and, and check him out. He's hitting over 300 with seven homers. He's got 14 steals. He's a good athlete. OPS over 900. He's a center fielder who goes gap to gap and plays plus defense. I think he's a superstar in the making and a multi-time, several time, maybe all-star. I really believe and there's only seven or eight prospects in baseball of that ilk, and he's one of them in the entire industry. So watch him today. He'll be fun. I think the guy that ends up becoming the best player in this game is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of the Toronto Blue Jays system. Uh, Guerrero Jr., who is the youngest player in this game by over a calendar year, is just a special talent. Uh, I don't need to tell people that his dad is is Vladimir Guerrero, of course, is a Hall of Fame player, arguably one of the best hitters of of my childhood. Um, And he's a teenager who in the Blue Jays system is moving very quickly and uh, is similarly just an exceptional athlete with all those explosive quick twitch muscles. He can run, he can hit, he can field, and he's got immense power. A lot of people feel like he'll put on the best batting practice display of anybody at, at this Futures game today. Then as far as pitching goes, uh, look out for Michael Kopik. Uh, he supposedly touched 105 miles per hour once. I don't believe that, but he has routinely touched 100 and touches you know, 102 at times. He's the White Sox arm who was acquired from the Red Sox for Chris Sale. And because pitchers one inning at a time in the Futures game are max effort in 20, 25 pitches instead of the 100 they normally throw, guys who normally sit 97, 98 like Kopik can throw 100 or 101 when they're airing it out. That's one of the more fun things about this game. Adnan, what's up, man? How are you? Hey, Craig. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm glad that we have you on the phone because I was killing time and I've killed so much time today that all of my killing time material is gone. I was just, I was basically just meandering through the wilderness of radio with nothing. So you are here to save no, the I'm, day. 
I'm sure it was phenomenal. I'm not a savior. I'm sure it was great. Don't worry about it. I, I was locked in on a celebrity softball production meeting. So, oh. listen, I got my priorities here, buddy. I know, I know. I thought, do you have the Futures game today as well? Are you you're part of that broadcast? No, I do not. Celebrity game. No, okay. I, I broadcast the Futures game in the past. Good memory. I did okay. that with Rick Sutcliffe and Aaron Boone a few years ago. But that's now MLB Network took it over. I did the final Futures game. I killed it for ESPN. It was so bad. Like, all right, MLB Network will take over. So oh. now I do Celebrity Softball, which is later today but it's going to air tomorrow after the home run derby. So basically it's like a two hour game. And then we edit down to like a nice 44 minute package. And, uh, and listen, people can joke all they want. And it does surprisingly well in the ratings because it comes up the home run derby, right? Which you're going to have right. hopefully Stanton versus judge. And then all of a sudden you got me raving about Jamie Foxx and Christina yeah, Milian. So who who you great. got? Who you got this year? Like who, who do we keep an eye on in this game? I was going to ask you that question about the futures game, but who cares about that? Tell me about the celebrities playing softball. So we've got Miles Teller, my buddy, of course. He was fantastic. Uh, he's not only, this is the thing, he was great in Bleed for This as Vinny Paz, but he was wonderful in Whiplash, and he's a returning participant. He played in Cincinnati a couple of years ago. So Miles, we love. Jamie Foxx is the headliner, okay? Academy Award winner, second straight year he's doing it. Jamie's a great athlete. Of course, uh, Baby Driver, which I love, in theaters right now. My girl, Jessica Mendoza, I just saw Jess in the hall. She's a little concerned. Listen, she's an Olympic champion when it comes to softball, but she's yeah. like, what if I strike out? I said, listen, Jess, we'll take care of you, I promise. The only the only strikeout we've ever shown... What is she going to do, edited, swing right? with her eyes closed? Like, Jess, Jess Mendoza's yeah. making contact. Right, I go, Jess, when you're going to park it, we're going to have a live mic on you around the bases. It's going to be fantastic. So Jess is going to be great. It, the only strike that we've ever shown was Terry Crews. When he struck out, we had to hammer him pretty hard, so that was entertaining. Right, and, um, the, and the thing is, by the time it aired, you had gotten far enough away from his muscles that no one was at risk. Correct. He couldn't. He couldn't beat me up. Although he did come to ESPN like a couple months later, and uh, I brought it up. I said, "Seriously, like, did you strike out on purpose?" He goes, "No, I still don't believe him. Like, he's I played in the NFL for like five years. I'm like, you just did that to be funny, you know? He does all pec flex." He's like, no, dude, I legit struck out. Uh, also, Christina Milian is going to be here. Uh, Rachel Lindsay from The Bachelorette, one of your favorite shows. No. Uh, Joey Chestnut, the hot dog eating champion. And I don't know um, him, but obviously the show is a huge success. Michael Cudlitz from The Walking Dead and Justin Hartley from This Is Us. So we got the go. stars, buddy. And did I mention Jenny Finch? She never misses one of these. Yeah, no, she's always there. Has Joey Chestnut had enough time to digest? Like, we're only on July 9th here, and he ate all of those hot dogs on the 4th. Yeah, I gotta check the numbers. I believe it was seventy-two hot dogs, and I think he ate it in twenty-three minutes. That's gross. So, sorry, 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 sorry. Not twenty-three minutes. Excuse me. That, no, that's not giving me nearly enough love. I believe he put on twenty-three pounds. Oh, yeah, that's that right. Because it's like twelve minutes. Yeah. Right. Twelve minutes. He ate seventy-two hot dogs, and he put on twenty-three pounds. Again, it's just so disgusting. But he's gonna be here. Maybe we'll get some. Uh, I don't know. We got to think of some delicacies we can feed him while he's on the game. We'll see how that works out. Yeah, the old the old uh, game and a hot dog might not be what he wants after that. All right, uh, that was time well spent. Adnan Burke with us here on the fan. Let's talk about real people who play baseball that people actually care about. Uh, the Nationals. I'm going to ask you the same open-ended question I asked uh, my pal Grant Paulson earlier, um, and that is, what do you make of the Nationals' first half? It's certainly been interesting. Um, probably far more interesting than if you were to just look at the record. What do you make of their first half? I'm sorry, what was the team I missed? The, the, first the Nationals. Nationals? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's been a spectacular first half. The only thing that's shocking to me, Craig, is the ball play. Look at the numbers. I just think it's crazy how you can have such a loaded team but then such an obvious Achilles heel. And I had to dig deeper. I said, well, maybe it's misleading. Like maybe, you know, Matt Albers, the RA is good. Maybe it's just a couple of guys. Sometimes that happens, right? You get lit up in one one outing and all of a sudden it just distorts your entire era but then i asked some guys 
you know, Aaron Boone, Rick Suckham, the guys who actually know baseball and talk about it, our analysts, they go, no, no, it's, it's a bad bullpen. They need to fix it. And Mike Rizzo will address it. But listen, the focus is this. The positive is the offense looks great. The fact that Bryce Harper's back and being Bryce Harper, like his triple slash on is outstanding. Um, I think he could win the MVP this season. He's certainly in the conversation. Uh, at least top three in my estimation. Anthony Rendon's been great. He's bounced back in a big way. And obviously Daniel Murphy's an absolute stud. And how about Ryan Zimmerman? The fact that you got first and second base in the All-Star game with both those guys, it's awesome. Offense is chugging along. And, of course, the pitching. Scherzer, for me, he's the pick to win the side, which would be his third. Um, and I love um, Steven Strasburg. You know, can I look at Strasburg's numbers? And I always say, well, yeah, but he doesn't pitch that long. And I said, no, that's actually a fallacy. That's what people have said in the past. He's actually been more durable this season. He's thrown more innings. Now, whether that'll catch up to him, and we all know Dusty Baker probably uses his starters too much in general, and maybe now he's being forced to do so out of necessity because of that leaky bullpen, that remains to be seen. But overall, I'd be thrilled if I'm a Nationals fan. Adnan Verk of ESPN with us. Um, when you look at, at their ability to make a, a move at the trade deadline and some of the closers and, and bullpen guys that may be available, are there p- specific guys that are going to be available that you really like or do not like, um, whether for the Nationals or, or anybody that might move uh, as we move towards the end of the month in the trade deadline? You know, it's interesting. We were looking at potential names that could go, and Sonny Gray and Jose Quintana, two guys who are – um, you know, listen, good pitchers, but just have struggled, whether whether it's injury or inefficiency. You know, they haven't been uh, nearly as strong as they have been in the past. So I think that's going to hurt the market because the White Sox, the A's, were both hoping to make a splash. So then I turned to other names and said maybe Justin Verlander because the Tigers are obviously terrible. He's owed a ton of money. Maybe Verlander goes to the Dodgers, and they have a really formidable rotation. Even though Verlander hasn't been as good this season as he was last year when he was top three in Cy Young voting, you know, he's obviously a veteran name. Maybe he'd be energized. I think if you go nationally to American League, you already, uh, you know, lose half a run off your eye anyway. So maybe that's a good move. And the name that Aaron Boone said to me is Garrett Cole. He thinks he could get moved. Obviously, Pittsburgh's in a rebuilding team right now. Uh, he has not been outstanding. He's certainly shown flashes of it, but he has not been consistent. And eventually he's going to get owed a lot of money just because people know the type of talent that he does exhibit. So maybe Pittsburgh will flip him. And, of course, my Blue Jays, Josh Donaldson. Um, he's an outstanding player. Again, top five MVP candidate. If Donaldson gets moved, that would be huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All-Star Week is always fun. Major League Baseball, I think, does a, does overall a pretty good job with it comparatively to, to the other leagues in their All-Star Weeks. Um, I think the NBA has done a great job with All-Star Weekend recently. The Pro Bowl is a disaster. But MLB does, does a good job with their All-Star Week. And the Home Run Derby tomorrow night has some real star power in it, from Aaron Judge to the hometown guy and Giancarlo Stanton. Like, do you expect tomorrow night to have a kind of pop to it that the Home Run Derby hasn't had in, in a long – I mean, we've had some good ones, but, like, do you feel like there could be more eyeballs tomorrow night uh, with some of this young talent and some of the marquee names in it uh, that we haven't necessarily had in the past? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my buddy Carl Ravitches is going to be his first year actually calling the game. I call the Derby, I should say, on his own. Obviously, Chris Bourbon's done such a great job for us over the years. Yep. Uh, and when, when Ravi's on the list, he goes, oh, my God, this is like a dream team. Like, you, you couldn't ask for better the fact that we've got all those names and the way the final could be set up to see Stanton versus Judge. That's what I'm hoping. I want to see these two behemoths go head-to-head. But, listen, the likes of uh, Bellinger, Moustakas, Justin Bohr, like, I mean, all these guys are going to pummel the ball. So, yeah, I think it's up to be one of the better home run derbies, and then the ball could be flying tomorrow night in Miami. 507 and a half feet over under longest home run. We getting over, we getting over that. <laughs> that's, that's pretty monstrous, man. I'll, I'll go under. I mean, I know we're at a record clip right now. Of home runs being hit in major league baseball, but 
507 is pretty beastly, man. I mean, they, I, I, they, I think those, some of those guys have hit that in BP, though. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking like a 485, 490, somewhere in that range. 507, I'm going to take the under. Okay. I tried, I tried to throw a big number out there. I didn't mean to, for it to be maybe that ridiculous, but I don't know. I, I know judges hit, hit one 500, and so is Stanton, so we'll see. Uh, enjoy, enjoy the time in Miami. I know you got a Rosillo show tomorrow as well down there at the Clevelander. Enjoy that. Enjoy the whole week, and uh, we'll talk to you later in the summer. All right. Appreciate it, Craig. Take care. Greg Hoffman in tonight on The Fan. Haven't done this since I've been at The Fan. Have my man Robert Flores on, which is just a horrific job by me. But we're going to rectify that right now. Roflo's on the line. Robert, what's up, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I, I, I appreciate you guys uh, playing some slow jams on the weekend as far as the, uh, the, you know, the music for me coming out of the bump. Yeah, you know, Jim, Jim Jester, uh, making sure that everything is nice and proper. Yeah, I'm uh, not sure, you know, I, I want to have that mood set with you per se, but it, <laughs> I, I appreciate the, I appreciate the thought nonetheless. Um, there's a lot of jokes I can make here, but I don't want to make everyone uncomfortable, <laughs> so I'm just going to move on and ask you, what did you make of the Pitbull concert before the 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 home run derby? Were you all wow. all over that? Yeah, that was that was something, huh? Um, yeah, his 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 jersey was really tight. His pants were even tighter, and uh, you know why he felt the need to tuck in the jersey. It's kind of his thing, uh, though. Yeah, it was it, it was interesting. It was interesting. Yeah, I, I was watching it on mute as I was taking calls in the last segment, and it was it was distracting. We'll, we'll say that. Um, all right, as for the home run derby that's actually going to happen tonight, um, do like. This is an event that can be really fun, much like the NBA dunk contest. It can be really fun, or it can just be a giant waste of everyone's time. Do you think with Stanton and Judge and some of these names we know, and even some of the names we don't, that baseball people seem to be really, really excited about, that we could have a pretty, like, what's one of the home run type of home run derbies that we look back 10 years from now and go, oh, remember the 17 derby? Yeah, I, I think really this has the potential um, to really overshadow the game itself, right? Uh, I, I mean, um, just because of the young stars, you mentioned Giancarlo Stanton, uh, certainly an, an established uh, player, a known commodity, the defending champion at home in his home ballpark. So, uh, and I, I think it really has a, uh, the chance to, like I said, uh, overshadow the game itself, which I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but it, it's just the fact of the matter. Yeah. The Nationals will be heavy contributors to the game itself uh, tomorrow night. Max Scherzer named the National League starter. Not really a huge surprise, uh, so I'd imagine you would agree that that is the right choice? Oh, absolutely. I, I think he is... Um, you know, especially with Clayton Kershaw pitching over the weekend, you know, kind of putting him out of the mix. Um, but really, even if Kershaw was available, I think that you could make the, the argument that Scherzer is is a is worthy as a NL starter. I mean, the gap, I think, between Clayton Kershaw and Max Scherzer, I think it is. I still think Clayton Kershaw is the best. But man, yeah, I, I, it, it is it is a small gap between Kershaw and Max Scherzer. What what Max Scherzer has done, and and you know what I like about both him and Kershaw is they go out there uh, with the mindset of 
they are going to not only strike you out, but take your will and dominate you. And they take it personally each at bat. And, and, and I really enjoy watching both of them do their work. Another thing both those guys do, and this is obviously extra large for the Nationals considering their bullpen situation, is they both go deep in games. Is it possible for you to put a value on what that means in the modern-day game where pitchers – and I'm not saying this is like old-school baseball guy because that sure as hell isn't me, who's like, oh, back in my day, they used to pitch nine innings and go out the next yeah. day. Like, it's not that. Like, I understand science and that, that managing load and managing the torque on an arm is important, but those guys have proven capable to do it. So how would you kind of try to put a value on that in the modern-day game? game of, of major league baseball well uh, clearly what those two guys in particular what they do uh sets them apart pitching deep into games consistently um i, I think if if you listen to john smoltz uh who's one of our analysts and you see him on fox and then you know uh in the booth uh, i think he has some real interesting ideas and thoughts on sort of the disservice we are or the game itself is doing to young players, young arms by just, uh, oh, well, 100 pitch, he's at 100 pitches. Well, time to start warming up the pen, time to get him out. I I mean, um, I I would like starters that are capable to go deeper into games. Um, But it, it just starts from how they are trained or how they're not trained. It's just a different time. But I think, like always, I think there's a way to do something without having to go to the extreme. So I would like to see more starters go beyond that magic 100-pitch threshold and go deeper into games. But, you know, unfortunately, that's just not the way things are. Robert Flores, MLB Network, with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fit. Do you have an idea of anything that, and the answer to this question might be no, but whether it's technology-wise, science-wise, or training-wise, when you're talking to these guys on set or just being around the game like you are now uh, in in your role, like, is, is there... Is there work being done to that aim, or does it feel like baseball's given up that fight? Uh, I I mean, right now, just hearing from from our guys and and the way they look at the game, it it just seems like the, the mindset is let's get guys that throw hard, go max effort all the time, and... Once his arm blows out, we've got five other guys that can do the same. Mm. I, I just think that that is it's not a smart way to do business. It's not a certainly not healthy. It's not good for the player himself. Um, but I, I think that there has to be a smarter way. I mean, there's so many smart people uh, inside the game of baseball. Uh, so many smart people that are involved with training the athletes and getting them ready on a consistent basis. There has to be a smarter way. Um, Velocity in in the game of baseball from a pitching standpoint is where it's at. You've got guys now. I mean, when when I was a kid, it was Nolan Ryan through 100 miles per hour, and everyone else was, you know, low 90s, 93, 94. Now it's – it's weird if a guy comes out of the pen and he's not throwing 98 or 99. That's just not sustainable. It's just a, a person can't throw max effort every time out 
and have that expect him to to have a, a long career. It's just not sustainable. No, I agree. It is interesting. Like touching ninety five used to be a thing that like wow that guy's out there firing, and now it's yep. like what what's wrong with him ninety five What a wimp. Uh, Robert exactly. Flores with us here on the fan. Um, I'm going to ask you a very open-ended question that I asked a couple of guys yesterday who, who covered the team and covered the league. Um, and I'm just knowing I'm, I'm not, I'm just going to leave it there. Open oh, as open-ended as possible. What do you make of the nationals first half of their season? There it, it is. Uh, they are really good, man. I mean, they are built for a long run, but if they don't solve the back end, then they're not going to go anywhere. I mean, they're, they're going to win their division, duh. Uh, but, I mean, their everyday lineup, it is fantastic. It, it is among the best in baseball. I mean, you could make the argument it's the best in baseball. Losing Trey Turner certainly hurts. But, look, in, in the postseason, for me, it's about defense bullpen performance and clutch hitting and you know the nationals they've got two of those three covered but they've got to figure out the back end of the bullpen or and i feel like i say this you know every year with the nationals or their postseason is going to end in disappointment um you know the the i don't know if it's irony or not but really one of the guys that that could really solidify one of these problems is someone that they used to have Felipe Rivero, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, young player granted, never, he certainly has, isn't used to to performing on the big stage, but, and, and, you know, they had Mark Melanson and it was a deal they felt they had to make, but man, Felipe Rivera, I look at what he's doing right now in Pittsburgh. That's a guy that, that if I'm a nationals fan, I'm I'm thinking, man, sure. wish that we still had that dude. Yeah, no, absolutely. Of the guys that are available, this will be my last question for you. Of the guys that, that might move that are back into the bullpen guys, is there one, forget the price that it may cost, is there one that you really, really like uh, above all the others? Uh, you know, I, when, when you look at, at what David Robertson, maybe him for the White Sox, um, you, you know, there. I'm so, yeah, for, the, for Chicago, I, I think that that's a guy that, that will be available. Um, but you, you look at what the nationals have to offer, right? I mean, they, they, they gave up, it, it was a steep price to get guys like Melanson to get guys like Adam. Eaton. So the question now is what pieces do they have in their farm system um, that can entice the white Sox to, to, to unload a piece or another team? Um, so they look. They know that they have to figure it out, and and national fans, I'm sure that they're concerned about it. But they have to know that that that's a problem. It's going to have to get figured out. The good thing is, Craig, is that they don't have to do it. You know, they don't have to do it this week. They don't have to do it next week. Um, but they've got to figure it out by the end of the month. Yeah. All right. I lied. I have one more question for you. Um, because right. I know that you are you, you care about boxing as a sport tremendously mm-hmm. so the floyd mcgregor fight we get we learned today that maybe bo- the reason this is happening is because floyd needs money because he evaded his taxes in 2015 um <laughs> so when you see this fight what what do you boxing purist robert flores someone who has cared about this sport his entire life make of this 
You remember when Muhammad Ali went to Japan and and fought that wrestler? That was in the seventies, well before. Yeah, say, I, I don't I don't remember it, but I, I'm aware of its existence. <laughs> yeah, it, it, better way to word that. What, that's that's what it is. It, it's a it's a sideshow. It's a farce. It is. Um, it will do nothing to advance the sport. The only thing it's going to do is uh, fatten the bank account of Floyd Mayweather, and it will give Conor McGregor the kind of payday that he will have never gotten from the UFC. Um, so that's what this is about. It's a money grab. It's not going to be entertaining. It won't be. Uh, it, it won't be intriguing. It won't be anything that we remember uh, years from now. Uh, the most. The, the thing that will be entertaining about this fight is the lead up to the fight. But the fight itself, it's going to be trash. It'll be garbage. Probably. And some people are going to pay a lot of money for it. Uh, not me. I I will not be one fattening Floyd Mayweather's bank account. No way, no how. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if someone has like a put something up on their periscope or yeah, something. Yeah, so I say that's that's how I watched the little bit I watched of uh, Mayweather Pacquiao was was <laughs> uh, was periscope hopping. Did I say that into a microphone? That probably wasn't my best idea. The statute of limitations got to be up by now, right? Uh, yeah, but, sure. You're good. <laughs> Robert Flores, you can catch him on the MLB network. Follow him on Twitter at Roflo. Uh, I promise you it won't be like 5 years until we do this again. It hasn't really been 5 years, yeah, but it's been long enough. Yeah, let's do it. We'll do it again, man. All right. I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. That is Robert Flores of MLB Network. I've known him for a long time, time, and uh, he's great. Um, He's killing it in baseball now, but uh, he knows a lot about a lot, Uh, and so we need to have him on more often, and that's my fault for not doing it. All right. Uh, He knows so much that we ran over time. Jester, on a a traditional grading A to F type of scale, how, how have I been on clock management tonight? Just below failing. (laughs) Yep. All right. We should go to break now. We'll talk about sports next. Craig Hoffman with you on overtime on the fan. Taking your calls, 800-636-1067. The premise I put forward is this. The Redskins actually knew what they were doing. I don't agree with it, but they knew what they were doing all along. That They actually don't have any interest in signing Kirk Cousins. Could that be possible? And do you agree with it? is the phone number. We go straight to the phones. Let's go to David in Bethesda. David, thanks for calling. You're on the fan. There's no chance that their plan all along was to not sign Kurt to a long-term deal and give him the money. There's just no way that that happened because you can talk all you want about Scott McLuhan or, or, or Gruden or Bruce Allen, or you can mention any name that you want. There is nobody in that park that makes any decisions. Bruce Allen is paid to speak whatever Dan Snyder tells him to. So the only way for the Redskins to become the Redskins again is if Washington gets a miracle. And that miracle would be if a bolt of lightning came out of the sky and struck Dan Snyder down. Yeah, David, we're not going to endorse people dying. That's not a thing we're going to do on this show. Do I think Daniel Snyder's had a great run as the owner of the Washington Redskins? 
No. No, I do not. In fact, I think it's been pretty horrific. And I think he's meddled, and I think he's gotten his his paws in places they did that were not uh, conducive to winning football games. But that's just, like, can we be humans? Also, your premise is incorrect. You were close. Nobody really makes decisions over there except for Bruce Allen. But I do think that there are voices that get heard. Bruce gets the ultimate decision, and if he's... If he's determined on something, then it's typically going to get done. But Jay's, Jay, Jay Gruden's voice matters. Doug Williams' voice has mattered before he got the new fancy title. Scott Campbell, like, there's a lot. Alex Santos, um, Eric Schaefer. There's a lot of voices that, that get heard. At the end of the day, is it possible that all of them could disagree with Bruce and then Bruce is, what Bruce wants happens? Yeah. But... I don't believe any of what you said is accurate, and I do not wish that anybody gets struck by lightning. You could have just said that he he gets bored and sells the team. Violence. It's not the answer, even when Mother Nature's your weapon of choice. Sean's in Oxen Hill. Sean, I don't know why I just said that like I was from Boston. I kind of stuttered on that. Oxen Hill, Sean, <laughs> thanks for calling. How, You're on the fan. How are you? I, I think it's uh, <laughs> two parts. I, I think initially... They intended to keep him, but they gambled on waiting a year to see how he was going to do. And uh, I guess he outperformed a little bit. But if you look at the consensus around the NFL, it's not like it's 100% for Kirk. Bill Polian said that Kirk is a system guy. He's good with the short stuff. He's one of the best with the intermediate stuff. But when you make him hold a ball and go down the field, he's not good at it. So I think the risk is leased him. They, they leased him. They're going to lease him for another year. And the blueprint is that of Dak Prescott. I know it's hard, but I don't believe we give Kirk the uh, 20%, 25%, 30% of the cap. That's what we're talking about, cap space here. Right. If we give him all this cap space and can't build around him, I don't think we'll be any better than if we build a team and try to get lightning in the bottle and find a young quarterback like Carr or Dak Prescott, have a low quarterback number, and then try to build a team around. They just know that Kirk has a ceiling. And and there's a fifty uh, percent of the league that believes that that you could plug and play someone in that quick rhythm based West Coast system, and they might not get four thousand yards, but it's it's not that much difference between what Kirk is doing and uh, someone else who can be plugged into that system. Sean, it's a really good call because I think your analysis is actually spot on, and I think a lot of people sitting in this chair who would like jump down the throat of that like this idea that Kirk isn't awesome all of the time I said this at the end of the season and and it's a thought I'll bring back now I think part of the Redskins issue is they didn't learn a whole lot this year like what Kirk was in year one was kind of similar to what he was in year two and in some ways like he was worse There, there the idea was that the trajectory arrow that was skyrocketing after year one would continue and he would grow, but he kind of didn't. The counter argument to that is this, that what he is now, even if he doesn't get any better, is one of the 15 best quarterbacks, maybe even 12, maybe even 10 best quarterbacks, and that in this system, you're not going to find a lot better. Maybe he's not translatable to another system. But in this system that demands that short to intermediate stuff where he's exceptional, 
you're not going to do a whole lot better. Do I wish that he took the top off the defense more? And do I, on some level, agree with Bill Polian's analysis? Do I agree with it wholeheartedly that he's not good at throwing deep? No. Do I wish that he read the deep part of the field better and was more patient with it? Yeah. But also look at what they've done with the receiving core. Bye-bye to Sean Jackson. Hello, Giants, to throw to. This short-to-intermediate stuff is going to be maybe even better. Now, with Crowder, who's incredible in that short-to-intermediate area, and then with Pryor, who's going to be a big-body target, like they've enhanced that part of his game while taking out the number one way in which they attacked where he wasn't so great. That should tell you something, too. Kevin's in Arlington. Kevin, thanks for holding. Thanks for calling. You're on the fan. Hey, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Love your show. Thank you. You all have touched upon a couple of things I wanted to say. Um, As someone who was right there in the end zone in the Giants game to end the season and watched that hapless performance, not just the late-game interception, which ended the season, but really the entirety of that game, Part of me says the Redskins might be right. Okay, I I think clearly they could have had him for forty four million guaranteed last year, and that would equal what they're going to pay minimally this year with a guarantee for the franchise tag the second time, uh, coupled with what they paid a year ago for the first franchise tag. So clearly they they bungled it in taking a shot. And like you said, they had every right to want to see more. And if you saw more, and as you said, maybe you didn't learn anything new, but if you are in possession of a top half of the league starter, the problem is, in my way of thinking, is if they're right that he just doesn't have the juice in the crucible to take you all the way. And I think that's a fair question. I mean, he's had many meltdown moments. He's a streaky quarterback. Yeah, you know, at times he's the you know the, the, the NFC Offensive Player of the Month as he was in, um, you know, December a year ago or two years ago, and in November this year. But there's also the other side to it. So my problem with the Redskins, other than blowing it a year ago and not getting into that 44 million guaranteed deal, is that they don't really have a plan B that's evident to me. I, I'm sorry, I love. Colt McCoy's a good backup. He's not a good 16-game starter. And Nate Sudfeld is a developmental quarterback. Yeah. If you're going to employ that strategy, maybe you don't draft Doxton out of TCU. Maybe you roll the dice and go for Paxton Litch, as John Elway did, so that you have a pipeline well, of quarterbacking talent. So I uh, wonder what you think about that. I just kind of yeah. feel like they've left themselves exposed if, if they're not going to sign Kirk long-term. Well, Kevin, the, the problem with drafting Paxton Lynch for instance, where there's two problems with that. One, I don't think Paxton Lynch is that good, so I'm the wrong guy to ask about Paxton Lynch. But the idea of spending a high draft pick is then, like, yes, you have some leverage, but it's also like, all right, are you trying to push Kirk out? And that's kind of, you know, being nice to Kirk is something they've had to try to do for all the years they weren't nice to him while Robert is here. The other thing you said, I'm going to flip your evidence for my argument, which would be that Cousins shouldn't be someone you invest in, And that is that the fact that we know he can get that lightning white hot is something that is worth keeping around. Because for all of the hand-wringing over Joe Flacco's contract, 
Cousins is better than Flacco, and Flacco won the Super Bowl. My counter-argument to you of you can't win with him is the Ravens won it with Flacco. And so if you have a team that's good enough to get to the playoffs and then Kirk can time, you know, look, it's hard. It's hard, and I know some of you are going to go, well, he sucks in the clutch. He's been, there's a mixed bag of results in the clutch. Like, let's be fair about it. The Giants game, the Packers game, uh, the Cowboy or the Eagles game in 2015 to win the division, that was incredible. So he's had some of both. But if his hot streak comes in December, January, and he goes on that eight-week ridiculous streak like he did to end the 15 season, and he did in the middle of last season, then, yeah, you can win a Super Bowl this, with this guy, and I have no bones about it. Uh, Andre's in Manassas. Dre, it's been a minute. Good to talk to you, man. Thanks for calling. No, no worries, man. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that the Redskins, obviously, they cock out the bed twice with Kirk. I mean, maybe three times. A, when you talked about just when they drafted him, and they just didn't treat him like, I guess it is shooting like a fourth or fifth round pick. But obviously, B, when they um, should have signed him last year, and I guess C, when they probably should have traded him um, this year, um, at, right before the, the draft. Listen, I, I love the Redskins, and I want them to sign Kirk Cousins, but I don't want them to make a third or fourth mistake, if you will, by signing Kirk for too much. And But when I say too much... I don't really care about the dollars. At the end of the day, it's not my money. But more so, I do care about the percentage. Right. Because I think ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what matters. How much of the cap goes to Kirk's salary? If you're telling me right now you can sign Kirk for $30 million and that's just 10% of the team's salary, I don't think it is. But if you were telling me that, right. okay, so I'd say sign the man. You know, I, I think one thing the Redskins have to, I guess, my, what may be unfortunate for the Redskins was this whole Otto Porter thing coming down at the same time too as well. Because now, at least for our fan base, you know, screw the national media, but at least for our fan base and the fans here, the Wizards and the Redskins and so forth, now there's a little bit of uh, a, a, more, a better understanding of, you know, how much money and the, I guess maybe the word is the value that some of these players have. Because, you know, I was a little bit taken aback to see, wait a minute, you know, Otto Porter is going to just third, fourth best player in the Wizards yeah. is getting $26 million. And here you go, you know, Kirk Cousins, the, the team's quarterback, It's a, you're, you're pulling teeth to right. pay the man the same amount of money. Granted, yeah. I realize they're two different yeah, sports. Yeah, they're, they're two different sports. That's actually, I'm glad you brought that up, Andre. I got to let you run because I'm, I'm up against it. I got Robert Flores coming up next. But he, uh, the NBA-NFL money comparison, you can miss me with that. I'm going to get into that later in the show. Like Terrence Knighton's tweet, I love Pot Roast. I loved having him here. I miss him as a, as a locker room guy. It, it, like, that's some really bad math, man. <laughs> we'll get to that later in the show. Larger point, I do think there is fear, though. Like, all right, we may have made two mistakes already, not signing in the past two years. Let's not make a third by doing it. I think that is a valid thing. Right now, Chase Hughes of CSN Mid-Atlantic covers the Wizards. Chase, what's up, man? How are you? Doing good. I hope Byron knows uh, he's got a tough act to follow. Oh, of course. He, I, he is aware of your your uh, just greatness, greatness here on the radio. Um, so the Wizards um, had an interesting weekend, obviously, with um, with, with matching Otto's uh, contract. Was From what you've been able to find out, was there ever any hesitation, even after the Nets threw in some of those quirks that they did in the contract, or was this always a foregone conclusion? It was always a foregone conclusion. Uh, I think pretty much uh, in the second half of the season, once they saw that what he was doing last year was legitimate, that he was uh, actually one of the better three-point shooters in basketball. And, you know, some of the wrinkles that the Brooklyn Nets threw in there that they had to match, uh, obviously beyond the max contract, 
We got a 15% trade kicker. Uh, those things can can be negotiated. Uh, you know, Chris Paul recently got traded. He, he had a $3.6 million trade kicker that ended up going down to uh, 600000 um, And there's stipulations where you can only make a certain percentage of the salary cap. So he may not, that, that may be a, a, a non-factor. And then the other thing is his uh, fourth-year player option. Um, if Otto Porter is in a position to turn down $28.5 million for the fourth year and try to reload in free agency, uh, that means he probably played really, really well in those first three years. So I think the, the Wizards have, uh, could ultimately uh, have a pretty good deal in this if he continues to improve. Uh, he took a big step last year. He'll have to continue to do that to make the money uh, justified. Knowing that the Nets, now knowing that the Nets have thrown all these things in there, the trade kicker, I think, is the biggest one. As you mentioned, the players player option could actually wind up being a, a decent thing for the Wizards, um, flexibility-wise, at least. Do you think they made a mistake not offering him a flat max right off the bat, twelve oh one when free agency started, or even before? Because um, they're, it's you know obviously Otto's their player um, that with the, creating the understanding like we're maxing you um, as opposed to like hey go find one. Yeah, that's a tough thing to judge. I don't think I wouldn't say that they made a mistake, uh, but I think they found out really quickly that no matter what he was going to get the max. And you saw the Sacramento Kings offer him that money. They ultimately uh, moved on and signed other guys. Immediately the Brooklyn Nets were waiting. And if the Brooklyn Nets didn't give it to him, then the Utah Jazz probably would have offered him uh, a big deal after Gordon Hayward left for the Boston Celtics. So I think Otto Porter uh, does a lot of good things, and uh, that three-point percentage certainly stands out. It's something that every team wants these days. And he's, uh, you know, comes at a position where there wasn't a whole lot of depth in his free agent class. Beyond Gordon Hayward, he was the second-best small forward. So I think it was good timing for him. And um, like I said, he's going to have to continue to improve to justify that money. But the Wizards uh, felt like he was worth it, so they matched the offer. Chase Hughes, CSN Mid-Atlantic Wizards reporter with me, Craig Hoffman, here on Overtime on the Fan. Uh, you, you, God bless your soul, watched the Summer League game today and have been watching all of the Summer League games. Uh, there are some guys playing for the Wizards Summer League team that probably need to play, uh, not just make the roster, but might need to play some minutes next year for this team. And certainly if they, they prove themselves capable, would be welcome to play minutes um, because we know this team needs a, a, a little bit of youth injection and they, they need some depth and they don't have many ways to acquire it. Has there been any way uh, or anyone who has stood out to you that looks like they can play? I mean, summer league's hard to judge on, but like, okay, this guy looks like he could he could play in the league. Uh, of the guys who are going to be on the roster, Daniel Sheffield has probably uh, looked the best. Although today, I must note he did have nine fouls, which is something he don't see very often. Nope. Uh, but in their first game, uh, he was very good. He had a double double, had five blocks. He he's. He's looking like, you know, he's on a different level than most of these guys. A lot of the guys that are on their team aren't going to be on an NBA roster next year. They're certainly not the Wizards roster. Uh, there's some interesting ones. I mean, uh, Marcus Keene, he's 5'9". He led the nation in scoring last year at Central Michigan. He scored 30 points a game. He came in, looked pretty good today. Uh, Sheldon Mack, uh, who was a rookie last year for them, has looked pretty good, though he's been slowed uh, by an ankle injury. So you really look at Oshefu and Mack, I think have been the most impressive. Chris McCullough, the guy they acquired in the deal for Boyan Bogdanovich in February, uh, he played better today. 
um, you know, showed off some of the athleticism with some pretty big dunks. So uh, it, it's not the most exciting year for their summer league, that's for sure. There's no guys who they just picked in the first round. There's uh, no real prospects you expect to be a, a future all-star. But there, but you're right that there are some guys that may have to factor into that rotation. And I think uh, Daniel Chefu's probably got the best shot at this point, um, considering there's health questions with uh, Jan Mahimi after his first season in Washington. Yeah, Martian Gortat not getting any younger either. When you look at what the Wizards have done this offseason, which obviously is basically re-sign Otto, a couple of other things. They bring in Jody Meeks. And then what the Celtics have done, bringing in Gordon Hayward but sending out Avery Bradley. What do you make of the gap between those two teams? Bigger, smaller, or about the same? Uh, you know, I think it's about the same. I think uh, before they traded uh, Avery Bradley, I, I mean, Marquise, Marcus Morris is a good player. He's a little bit different than his brother, Marquise, who we know very well as a, a member of the Washington Wizards. But Avery Bradley might have been uh, as good or maybe the best defender in basketball against John Wall and, and Bradley Beal, too. I mean, he was a hard-nosed, uh, all-defensive team um, guard, uh, could stay in front of John Wall, very physical. Uh, so I think as much depth as Boston now has at the small forward position, and they have an unbelievable amount of depth, uh, they're kind of thin at guard. I mean, they have Isaiah Thomas. He's very good. Uh, he's only got one year left on his deal. They've got Terry Rozier, who's a good backup. Now Marcus Smart uh, may have to start, and they lost their best uh, you know, antidote to the house of guard. So um, I think if you look at the matchup, um, now the Wizards are going to have a whole lot of uh, trouble, of course, defending uh, the swingman that the Celtics can throw out there. Jason Tatum has maybe been the most impressive player in uh, the summer league, and Jalen Brown will be a year older. And then, of course, Gordon Hayward's an all-star. Uh, but the Wizards, their best uh, assets are in the, at the guard position, and the Celtics gave up uh, their best answer to them. No, I agree with you. I think they match up better now with Cleveland because they have more offensive firepower. They have more ways they can score, which is their problem last year. Uh, but I think with the Wizards, it, they actually match up worse now. Like, I think Bradley was so imperative. Unless Ter- Terry Rozier turns into some monster, like, I think the I'd pick the, the Wizards still to beat the Celtics like I did last year. Of course, I might be wrong like I was last year, but whatever. Um, Chase Hughes, CSN with me. Last thing, last thing for you on the way out. Have you heard any kind of rumblings on the idea of trading Marching Gortat, and there, there was some some rumbling on that at the end of the season, and some comments, if I'm remembering correctly, that he made that he would almost seem like he would be okay with that. Like, what what is that something? Like, if you were to put a percentage on the likelihood that Martian Gortat is traded at some point before the deadline in February, what would that percentage be? Uh, at this point, honestly, I, I think it's less than fifty uh, percent. You know, at the locker room cleanout day, what you're referring to is. Uh, you know, Martin Gortat was pretty honest with us. He said, you know, they signed Jan Mahimi. Um, this league is going in a different direction than the style player I am. I'm going to have to, he said he was going to have to have a conversation with uh, Ernie Grunfeld and with his agent, talk to the organization. Ernie Grunfeld said they already had that conversation, and he assured Martin Gortat that he's going to be a big part of their future. Now, whether that is uh, just smoke and mirrors, I don't know. Uh, but Gortat, I, I, I think... Uh, if he's going to be traded, it would have to be this offseason. I don't think it would be midseason. And, and it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of interest out there for players like him. But he does have a pretty favorable contract for the new salary cap. He's making about $12, 13000000 That's lower than the average starting center makes. 
Uh, he, you know, got a lot of rebounds last year. For much of the year, he was in the top five before Jan Mahimi came back and took some of his minutes. Uh, had one of his best years field goal percentage-wise and was the best player in all of basketball at screen assists. He's very, very good at setting screens and the pick and roll. So there is some value there. It just doesn't seem like teams are putting a premium on the type of things that he does. I think he would fit, if you had a rookie point guard like a De'Aaron Fox in, in Sacramento and you wanted someone who could you know, run the pick and roll with him, someone who's very experienced in that, then Gortat could make sense. Uh, but there just isn't a big market for a player like him at this point. Understood. Chase Hughes, CSN Mid-Atlantic. You can read his stuff there, csnma.com. You can see him uh, doing video content there as well. Chase, always appreciate it, man, uh, and I will see you. I, I know we talked about this earlier today. We'll get you in studio sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Say hi to my friend Byron for me. I will. I will. That is Chase Hughes <laughs> of CSN. Maybe I'm the one. Header! My name's Craig. Here on the fan. Wait, I feel like I need to let this breathe. Oh my goodness! Give me all of the pee. This is a song that I'm unfamiliar with, remixed with Pete Metters. Into the box! What? What the hell is this? What goes on at this radio station during the week? What show? This has, is this a chat production? Uh, yeah, it was in chat's folder. Okay. He blew it. Who, who do we think did this? Brock? No, this is this is probably years ago. Does it go? Three and a half minutes. Oh. Well, I'm just going to get more coffee then and y'all enjoy. Why are we doing this? That is the question you're probably asking. <laughs> the Energizer Bunny has done it again. <laughs> I was just sore. Screw it. Just let it go. Just keep this. In the background, and so we don't miss anything like collision. Anything more? PJ Elliott, my producer over there, my buddy, my pal, and Pete Methurst, who you hear intermittently in this song. I can't do this. And again, I don't even know why we're gonna do the rest of the show. Nothing will be better than this. Okay, there are no more clips in the song. <laughs> oh, I take that back. Goodbye. The game is over. All right, the game is over. Just fade it. Fade it. Let's cut the cord now. You, PJ, were tweeting with Pete Medhurst about Pete's life as an umpire and your life as a coach. And this is space I want to explore. Not as much anymore, because now I just want to listen to that song on repeat. But this is space I want to explore before we talk to Kevin Broom in 10 minutes from Bullets Forever about uh, Otto Porter and and what the Wizards are doing. So, uh, what are our thoughts on Pete Medhurst, the umpire? I feel like Pete's voice actually, like, not every broadcaster would make a great umpire. But I feel like Pete would make a great umpire. I'm with you there. 
like a good yeah like I mean just listening to some of that like at first I didn't even realize that was Pete I thought you were playing like some umpire song no uh, you know I, I'm with you Pete now I've I've coached uh little league baseball like my son's team and we've had umpires that you just you don't you don't know if they're calling balls or strikes because they're just not loud Pete is gonna be I was gonna say because they they didn't enunciate you just get the Ah! Oh no no no, like, no no no! What is that? Was that a ball or a strike or are you hungry? No, I, but I'm sure Pete is very clear on what the call is. Yeah, enunciation not a problem for Pete Medhurst. He's a professional talker. Whether it's doing the updates in the mornings here or for Navy play by play, the man, his voice is amazing. Um, he's been hashtag blessed with the goldenest of all the pipes. Um, but his personality is also like Pete is very methodical i feel like just even in the way he speaks you're just like this is a man with a plan and i feel like that's a that's the kind of person you want officiating a game like you want someone who's going to be loyal to the process not going to be get too high or low not that pete's not they can't get emotional we know pete cares about sports a lot oh you get that that comes through when he talks about him we know pete Pete's, Pete's not a not not an uh, uh, an empty body of non emotion, but I feel like he's just like Pete's. Pete's a pro's pro, and like that's what you want. If you like, give me some adjectives to describe your ideal umpire or official. Pro's pro would be like a phrase you'd want to come up, and that's that's our man Pete Methurst. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, and then there's you, PJ. PJ the coach. PJ's role in this in this Twitter exchange between he and Pete. By the way, also props to Pete Medhurst for using Bitmoji. His his tweet was when you check off all your umpire checklists and you're ready to go, and there's little bald Pete with a headset on with a fist pump, like Pia, let's read Howard Dean style fist pump. Looks like what he just finished. And he's ready to go. I don't think the Pia was in there, but uh, but I I would not have pe- pegged Pete Medhurst as someone to have the Bitmoji app on their phone, but that's what I get for underesti- underestimating Pete on sports. He throws it out every once in a while. Pete on Bitmoji. Yeah, he's he's got him. That'd be a hell of a show. Um, you, however, sir, your role in this was that you've gotten just one technical in your coaching career in seven years. But are As you coaching how, basketball? How many head coaching have you done? Aren't you an assistant uh, I, out there? This, this was the the first year at Brook Point, um, the first year where I haven't been a head coach. Okay. On the freshman JV level, I've always been a varsity assistant. Uh huh. But I've also, on top of that, been a head freshman or JV. So this was the first year where I didn't do that. So when you got your technical, how long ago was your technical? Uh, two or three years ago. Did you did you deserve it? I I did. Um, you know, uh, officials are always wrong. More more importantly, <laughs> Thanks, Jeff Van yeah. More importantly, in this game, there we had two officials. One was uh, was calling a good game. The other one not not calling anything. And I had two players that got hurt because he wasn't calling fouls. So it just escalated and escalated. And then I was kept going on. And and I told him if I sucked this much of my job, I'd quit. And got a technical. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. So no profanity? 
Oh, there's definitely been profanity, and and what's but not not that's not what got you the technical. You didn't no. drop drop a magic blue word. No, I mean I've definitely cussed, and I I believe I did cuss in that game, but it wasn't until I, I said, yeah, if and- I suck this much in my job, I quit, <laughs> and that he's like, okay, I've had enough in technical, and it was I knew it was coming. It, it did built. you kind of want it? Just to show your guys, I, I, like, I hey, did. I did, yeah, because because my guys have get they were getting hurt, and, yeah. and that's you know when safety becomes an issue, that's when yeah. I really start, you know, going after them, and you know, I did it just uh, um, this past two weeks, last week down we were at a, a summer camp down at Randolph Macon in Richmond, and because it was a JV team and I and I was leading the JV team, um, we had college players that were coaches, uh-huh. or not coaches, I'm sorry, Referees. officials. Yeah, and and just I mean it was terrible. And yeah, well that's the thing is like especially at the lower levels, the officials aren't going to be that like it's hard to officiate in the NBA. Right, those guys are so fast. The game is slower, but the officials aren't as good. No, it, at the it, lower levels, like so you're getting volunteers basically. You're not getting guys that are trying to become NBA officials. No, these are guys with full time jobs and yeah, you know they they and and you know the, I, God I, bless you know them. What? Yes, God bless God him, bless because him. if I say anything wrong, it's going to be a bad year for Brook Point. <laughs> Let me ask you this. <laughs> How many games would you give me till I got teed up? Uh, I, I don't think you're as as temperamental as I, I am. Uh, well, okay. I mean, I, I've, I seen, yeah, I've, seen, I've seen you at a 10, okay? But I don't know if, it, if that... If I say, I've, gotten, I've, got, I've yelled at some folks on the phones... So I, I, mean, I, I think, me. I don't know if you've seen me in an athletic environment, though. Yeah, that's get, the thing. Like pretty, I've seen, I've seen you with worked up. with with some calls. I've I've seen you uh, discussing politics. I've seen you um, your level of intensity when it comes to certain things. But I don't think I've ever seen you like you know basketball. I feel like my problem. That's what we should do. We should we should watch a Syracuse basketball game. I think that's where I would see you. That could be a good one. That could be good. I mean, the Wizards last year, I was pretty into. We didn't watch any Wiz games together. We'll have to do that. Or let's just go play. I, if you, okay. I mean, you, you definitely have the athleticism over me right now. But that's, that's fine. But I can still knock down threes. Hey, I need, I need shooters to space the floor. I, I need you, PJ. You, you sit in that corner. The, the, all right. I'm, I'm there. Um, I'll play good help defense. Good. Excellent. Scheme sound. And if um, anybody's coming to the paint, you know what? If an elbow gets thrown, it gets thrown. <laughs> if you come into the paint on here's, me, here's you got to come problem, hard. Though. Here would be my problem as a coach. Um, I can be a little quick-witted. And so what got you the technical is more that, like, dropping some really sharp dig. <laughs> That's... That comes real naturally to me. Right. It's gotten me in trouble in other facets of my life where a simple technical foul probably would have been better than the actual result. Right. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't give myself that many games. But if you need an assistant, you uh, holler at your boy. Okay. That is it. That is all for this week's edition of the Best of Pod. The Train with the Best Podcast is out as well. The Derek Carr edition uh, it was really, really good. Highly recommend it. Episode 19, episode 20, recording Wednesday, will be up soon enough, depending on when you're listening to this. Maybe it's out already. Uh, Crystal Dunn, U.S. Women's National Team, maybe the best striker in the world. 
Uh, she is going to join us on the show. Got Randall Cobb hopefully next week as well. So big couple of weeks here for the Train with the Best pot. So subscribe to that. Subscribe to this. You can always rate and review as well. Share it on your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram if you are so inclined and are able to, which means you're verified. Big shot. This is the podcast you are. All right. Uh, I'm done talking now. Thanks for listening.